Amen. If you have a Bible now, you can open to Revelation 7, or just follow along there in the liturgy on the next page, on the same page, really. Um, Every book is written to serve a purpose, Uh, really whether the the author is aware of the purpose or not, or makes that purpose explicit. Every book is written for a purpose, Uh, whether that purpose is to record history or to instruct in a certain subject, uh, like a textbook at school, or to express and engage the imagination through art and poetry or uh, just to entertain, like many novels. Um, Every book's written to serve a purpose. The primary purpose of the scriptures, the book that is the the Bible, is to reveal God to us. It's to reveal the true God to us for our relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ. And if God is real, uh, if he created all things, if what the children just sang is true, that, that from him and through him and to him are all things, <clears throat> if that's true, and if you exist because of him and for his glory, <clears throat> then knowing him and relating to him could never be a peripheral matter. It could never be something to be sidelined or put off until it was more convenient. <clears throat> Nothing could be more important or relevant to your life than your relationship with God. So there can be no greater purpose to a book. So there can be no greater book than the one that reveals the true God to us for our relationship with him through faith in Jesus. This book, the Bible, is made up of many shorter books or letters which are written by different authors, using different languages, in different literary genres, with different styles, the various parts of scriptures... Um, as different as they may be, all these different parts, they have the same purpose. They reveal the one true God to us in different ways. And here in Revelation, we have God revealed for our relationship with him in Christ in a vivid vision that is full of imaginative symbols. It engages the mind and engages the heart deeply, which perfectly suits a book that is written with such a great purpose. Nothing could be more important than what is written right here. So, Young and old, men, women, and children, give it your full attention. Let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we come to your word having many distractions. Some are good, like the need to care for children and others in our lives. Some are bad, some bad distractions that uh, they're like, worried fixations on the cares of this world. We pray that you would help us not to distract ourselves from your word. That uh, your word is the most important thing in the world and we need to hear it. It speaks of you. It speaks of your son. It speaks of your spirit. It speaks of our relationship with you together in the church as a gift of your grace. So we pray that you would capture our hearts and our minds now and help us to know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 7, beginning in verse 1. After this, I saw four angels 
standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so Jesus is giving John a vision that ranges from heaven to earth. It's a vision of things in heaven that affect things on earth. John hears and sees the divine throne in the heavenly temple. He hears and sees the crucified and risen Lord Jesus ascending to the throne of heaven. He's the only one worthy to take up God's own authority in the world. John hears and sees Jesus begin to open the, the seals on the scroll, which means the advancing of God's kingdom and the unfolding of God's judgments in history. And last week, we looked at chapter 6, where Jesus is the lamb who was slain. He began to open the seals on the scroll. He opened the first six seals of the scroll, and it's a heavenly portrayal of the developments in the book of Acts, sort of showing what 
uh, from heaven's perspective, it looks like as we read the book of Acts. These are the things that would happen as Christ's kingdom advanced through the proclamation of the gospel. And even though the sovereign Lord opens the seals to advance his kingdom, the experience is that things become increasingly difficult for the church, just as he had said they would during his time on earth. And his faithful witnesses began to die for their testimony, and they cried out to the Lord for his justice. So it's a time of great tribulation, a phrase that we find in our, in our chapter in verse 14. Great tribulation, it's a phrase that could be synonymous with the Christian life from a certain point of view, right? Where there's collision and conflict between the believing church, between God's kingdom, and the unbelieving world. <clears throat> and God's judgments um, eventually become altogether unbearable for those who resist the rule of Christ, who continue in opposition to him and in opposition to his people. So at the end of chapter 6, Christ's enemies sought to hide from him. They seek to hide from the wrath of the Lamb. It's a terrible irony because Jesus is the Lamb who was slain for the forgiveness of sins, gave his life for the forgiveness of sins. It's a terrible irony because his enemies have set themselves against the one who is love incarnate, who would forgive them. But they refuse his gracious rule. And they cannot bear his good wrath And they prefer even death by burial if it means avoiding Jesus. But they ask the most important question anyone could ever ask. And so at the end of chapter 6, sort of sets the stage for chapter 7, they call to the mountains and rocks. They call out, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? That's the question. Who can stand the wrath of the one who is holy love? Who can stand the presence of the only one who is good? The only one who's worthy? Who can stand when God turns his face upon them? It's the ultimate question posed by the ultimate book, which is written for the ultimate purpose. The scriptures are written to reveal the true God to us for our relationship with him. How can we have a relationship with him? How can we even survive an encounter with him? How can we even stand in his presence, let alone enjoy the relationship? Standing in his presence implies that we would have some confidence about God, about our relationship with him, about our standing with him. For us to be able to stand in God's presence means first that he, the Holy Lord, would allow it and that he would welcome us. It also means that we would believe that it was possible so that we wouldn't just cringe and cower and crumple to the floor. It implies that we would be convinced enough of his favor, that we wouldn't just be overwhelmed by our own guilt, our own shame, our own unworthiness due to our sin and our our thoughts about our own rebellion against him. This really is the question of all questions. When the natural inclination of sinful human beings has always been to hide from God's wrath, the question of all questions is, who can stand? 
who can stride out away from all supposed hiding places, forsaking all our devices that we imagine could cover our shame, and step out, naked and unashamed, as it were, into the full, clear, searching, knowing gaze of the Lord. Who can survive the judgment of his presence? When the sixth seal is opened, this is the big question, but it, it seems to be a rhetorical one on the lips of the enemies of Christ because they feel the answer to be obvious, right? No one can stand. It's just a, another way of saying no one can stand in God's presence. And that's the answer for them because they've believed, because they're, they're stuck believing, that the only way to survive the wrath of the holy God is to stand on your own two feet before God, to be good enough, to be worthy, to be deserving of his favor, rather than <clears throat> deserving of his condemnation. They believed this uh, during life, and they lived as if this were true about their relationship with God. We have clear record in the Gospels of those who are like this, who opposed Jesus they were all about their own righteousness, uh, all about their own reputation in God's sight, qualifying them to receive God's favor rather than his condemnation. They thought, they believed, the enemies of Christ, they built their whole lives around this idea that they would be able to stand the judgment of God's presence if they just didn't do anything worthy of guilt and shame, or if they just kept God's law and lived good, obedient lives. So, so committed were they to this uh, religious paradigm that they even hated and killed Jesus for suggesting otherwise. <laughs> the irony of that, they opposed God in the name of God. They rejected God under the auspices of wanting to please God and find favor. <clears throat> but here in Revelation it becomes clear that those who would live this way will someday come face to face with the truth of God and they'll make the terrible discovery that they cannot truly live this way before the face of God. When they find themselves in the judgment of his presence, they'll find themselves unbearably exposed and their self-confidence will be stripped away. So the, the question is, who can stand? If you're devoted to the idea that you could stand in God's sight because of who you are, because of what you have done with your life, you'll be the first to try to hide from God's face when you see him. So who can stand? Is there some other answer? Is there some other way? I mean, if you can't stand on your own two feet before God, what does it mean to stand? How could you stand? This chapter uh, continues the vision of the sixth seal, and it gives us the answer to this most important question. Those who are sealed by God, sealed by Christ spiritually, those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, they, and they alone, will stand in the judgment of God's presence. So in the beginning of chapter 7, we see another angel, it says, another angel ascending from the rising of the sun. This angel is Jesus, right? Uh, he, he often is called that in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, the son of God, right? So he's the angel of the Lord himself. <clears throat> he's commanding his angels 
not to bring the ultimate judgment until, verse 3, we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. So later in the book of Revelation, those, those who worship the beast, uh, we'll talk about who that is or what that is later, uh, but you can tell right now it's, it's false worship, right? Worship of a false god. Or, um, uh, but those who worship the beast receive his counterfeit mark on their foreheads uh, for full acceptance into the society that is under the beast's control. They want to fit in with the beast. They want to worship the beast. So they receive the mark of the beast, right? The true seal, that's all counterfeit. The true seal authenticates those who belong to God. And it marks those who can stand in God's company. It's not a visible mark, like a tattoo on the forehead or something. It's a spiritual seal. Right? So again, later in, in Revelation 14, these, uh, these ones who are sealed, 144,000, it's said that they have the name of the Lamb and the name of the Lamb's Father written on their foreheads. So, how is the name of the triune God placed on our heads? It's in baptism, right? God is the one who sets us apart for himself as a gift of his grace, who claims us as his own special people, who authenticates us in our relationship with him, who unites us to his beloved son, who is really the only one truly worthy to stand. And this is a wonderful surprise to those who have been oppressed by the belief that we must make ourselves presentable to God, who've been oppressed by the belief that we must be able to stand before God confident in ourselves. Because some people devote their lives to that belief in pride, thinking that that's possible. And some people with that belief are just oppressed by that idea. It's the, it's the worst idea for us, but this is a wonderful surprise. The surprise is communicated here in our passage. It's probably, um, it's in the least obvious place to most of us. When you read this chapter, uh, you probably tuned it out. It's the census of the people of God, of the, the 144,000. You probably tuned that out as we read through it. <clears throat> we have a hard time with the apparent monotony of lists like this. Uh, it's hard for us to pay attention through the genealogies and the censuses, and the long list of names. But there's always a surprise twist going on with these lists. <laughs> there's always something fascinating hidden in the details that you've really got to stick with it and study it to figure out like what's going on with these lists. The tribes of the sons of Israel, that's who's listed here, right? The 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe. tribe. The tribes of the sons of Israel were the descendants of Abraham and Isaac, and they were the children of Jacob, who was renamed Israel. And these were meant to be representative of a new humanity that's redeemed from sin, made able to stand in God's presence in a restored relationship with him by his grace. Now, of course, the actual sons of Israel were a bunch of scoundrels gotten from Jacob's two wives, Leah and Rachel, and their two slaves, Bilhah and Zilpah. It's pretty much the most dysfunctional family ever when you read the story in Genesis. They're a bunch of scoundrels. 
usually when they they're listed, uh, either these sons, their names are listed, or when they're listed as the tribes, the tribes that come from these, the descendants of these sons of Israel, usually when they're listed, they're either listed in the order of their birth, or with sort of the more legitimate sons first, then, then it'll be the sons of the slave women, the illegitimate sons. But here the order is all changed up in a unique way. Uh, and it's a surprise, and it's a, it's a good surprise to us. Instead of the firstborn, Reuben, coming first, Judah, who is fourth, he takes the primacy of place because Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So we know that this list is a list of those who are saved by Jesus. Then Reuben is listed in the next place of honor, in spite of everybody knowing what an immoral miscreant he is. And you can read about that if you want to in Genesis 35. But then, instead of the actual birth order, with other legitimate sons being listed next, the whole thing's turned upside down as the sons of the slaves come next. They're given a place of honor in this list. Now, it's important to recognize the fact that that one of the sons has been removed from the list. Dan. Uh, Dan, the tribe of Dan has been removed from the list, and they've been replaced with Manasseh, who's one of Joseph's sons. And they've been replaced because of the outrageous idolatry of the tribe of Dan, which you can read about in Judges 18. So we're not talking about universalism here, right? Those who are sealed... Those who are made able to stand in the judgment of God's presence, they must actually know God and confess him and repent of their idolatry. But the whole list, the whole list of those who are sealed, definitely does not describe good, wholesome, moral, worthy people. It doesn't. Emphasis is made on that point. All sorts of rascals are counted among those whom God seals as a free gift of his grace. And at first, John hears the list of these 144,000 of the sons of the tribes of Israel, right? 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. It's 12, it's one of these great symbolic numbers that we find in the scriptures and especially here in Revelation. It's the number of the whole people of God because it's the number of the original tribes of Israel. And later, it's sort of the the number of the people of God because it's the number of the the 12 disciples of Jesus who are the new Israel. So 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000, right? Representing the vast multiplied fullness of the people of God. So John hears this number, but when John turns to see when he looks, what does he see? It says in verse 9, Behold, here's the surprise, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, doing that impossible thing, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So it's the same kind of surprise that John experienced in in chapter 5, of Revelation, 
when first he heard that the lion of the tribe of Judah was worthy. He'd been found worthy. And then he turned to see, and he saw something he had not expected. The lamb, standing as if he had been slain. So the the sealed people of God that he expected to see were this great number from the tribes of Israel, right? Jews. But behold, a number too great to count from all over the world, all those people everywhere throughout history who've been sealed, who've been baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, who belong to Jesus Christ by grace, through faith. This is a fantastic development of the scriptures. It's the universal, global, multi-ethnic nature of the church. All kinds of scoundrels are welcome in heaven, not just the Jewish ones. All shapes and sizes of sinners are sealed by God's grace and made able to stand in his holy presence. This great multitude is really inconceivable to us. We can't even begin to imagine it, really. There will be so many people who are so different from us standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So let's just try to imagine them one or two at a time, just a few of them. A eunuch serving in the court of the Queen of Ethiopia, Acts chapter 8. A high-ranking Italian soldier in the Roman army, Acts 10. A wealthy Greek businesswoman and her household, Acts 16. A lecherous Algerian grammar teacher. That's Augustine. A British boy enslaved in Ireland. Patrick. A Czech philosophy professor. Jan Hus. German and French law students turned theologians. Luther and Calvin. Just random people. Some Portuguese sailor, some Japanese rice farmer, some pioneer on the Oregon Trail, some guy who took communion on the moon, an Australian cattle rancher, a Guatemalan coffee grower, a Russian store clerk, a Native American kid living in poverty on the reservation, a retired teacher doing artwork in a village by the sea, A mother in a refugee camp in Africa who calls nowhere home anymore. A family hiding from persecution in the South Pacific Islands. A prisoner in the county jail. Members of your own family. And you and us. These are able to stand. These and unthinkable multitudes more are able to stand in the presence of the one on the throne because they've been baptized into the only one who is worthy to stand, the lamb who stands as if slain. We are able to stand, not in self-confidence, but in the confidence that we have through faith in Jesus Christ, in Christ confidence. We are able to stand not because of who we are or what we've done, but because we've As in verse 14, washed our robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We're able to stand because Jesus has held back the ultimate judgment until we could all be sealed. Because God has been patient with us, not wanting any to perish. He's been patient 
with us for ages so that we could come to repentance and faith. We are able to stand because God has graciously welcomed us to stand in his holy presence and his spirit has made us able to believe it, that we were welcomed by his grace. We are considered as pure and righteous in the sight of God through the forgiveness of sins that comes through Jesus because he went to the cross and he shed his blood and he died for misfits and miscreants like us. Because of him, we can not only stand, we can rejoice and we can share in his victory and we can wave palm branches in celebration and we can sing and dance in worship. In fact, because of him, we even get to conduct worship in heaven. We get to conduct the angels in heavenly worship. When we, the multitude of the seals, sealed, <clears throat> cry out with a loud voice, then uh, what happens in verse 10 happens. We, we cry out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then the angels fall down in worship. I mean, these are the same angels who previously meditated, uh, sorry, mediated God to us in whose presence we were unable to stand. Every time we've seen them in the scriptures, people fall down in their presence. But because of Jesus, we're counted worthy in him. We're made to share in his kingdom authority. We're made to judge the angels and to lead their heavenly liturgy and to direct them to praise the Lord. The sealed and the washed are, as it says in verse 15, before the throne of God serving him day and night in his temple and uh, leading that heavenly liturgy. Because of Jesus, we will not need shelter from God's presence, from the exposure of his gaze and the judgment of his presence. Because of Jesus, he who sits on the throne will shelter us with his presence. So when the sealed and the washed enter the presence of God, when those who have been baptized and those who have trusted in Christ enter the presence of God, we will never experience his presence as wrath. We need never even fear that experience because Jesus has suffered it on our behalf. And that's true freedom for the oppressed. And that's true comfort for the afflicted. This is true security for the unworthy. This is true courage and strength and joy for the humble it's a true and pleasant surprise for those who thought they had to stand before God in their own self-confidence. Who can stand? Jesus, really. And in the name of Jesus, you. You can stand. You can come forward to the throne of heaven. You can drink of the living waters of the Holy Spirit. And you can let the Father wipe away every tear from your eyes. Amen. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, we need to be reminded of this truth always, not just weekly, every day. We need to remind ourselves this glorious truth. We need to remind one another this glorious truth that in Christ we are able to stand before your presence. And that means everything to us. It means the whole world has turned upside down. The way that we can live, the way that we should live, has changed. Everything's changed for us because of your grace because you've declared us who are 
we're, we're unworthy to stand in your presence, but you've declared us worthy in the name of Jesus, in the name of your son. You've given him for that very purpose so that we can stand in your presence, so that we can call you our father, so that we can share your own spirit, so that we can sing and dance with joy and celebrate your salvation and even direct angels in the heavenly liturgy. Now, these things are uh, well beyond what we can deserve and even imagine. We pray that you'd help us, help us to really believe these things, help us to be changed by this truth. Help us to think frequently on the fact that you've saved us from ourselves, that we can stand in your presence in spite of who we are and in spite of what we've done, but because of Jesus. Help us to turn our thoughts to Jesus frequently. Help us to turn our thoughts to the the multinational uh, character of your church, the nature of your church, and all the different kinds of sinners who are welcome in your presence as a gift of your grace, those who've been sealed and washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. Help us to celebrate this great salvation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.